Hello and welcome to the SEO Sprint Podcast. Today I'm here with Malti. Uh, hi Malti, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, all right, so just introduce yourself for anybody who doesn't know who you are. Uh, sure, I'm uh, Malte, Malte Landwehr, uh, currently the head of SEO at Idealo, one of the largest price comparison websites in Europe, or I guess I could say in the world. Um, before that, I've uh, worked in, in management consulting. I've started my own, my own SEO agency. I once upon a time thought I would obtain my PhD and started some project in social media research and analytics. And I spent five years at Searchmetrics and in the end uh, was leading the product department at Searchmetrics. Yeah, cool. That's And that's what I'm really in, interested in talking to you about because we are both fellow um, SEO tool provider product people from the past. So I think I just think it's really interesting to talk to you and, and talk through that. So I like to ask this with all my guests just to get just to kind of break the ice. Just explain to us how you got into SEO and then explain how you got into a PM, a product role. Sure. Um, SEO was really by accident. I was a bit of a nerd as a kid. So I had my first website at, I don't know, 12, 13, 14. Uh, nobody ever visited it, which was probably for the best. And then at some point, I set up a very simple PHP BB2 internet forum for me and my friends. And at some point, people started registering there whom I hadn't sent the URL. So I was asking myself, how did they find this forum and that's how I learned about Google and realized they are crawling my website and ranking me and learned about PageRank and uh, yeah from there I started building websites then specifically to attain traffic via SEO and uh, that's how I got into doing SEO and uh, the search metrics thing is a bit of a fun story uh, I've always known a ton of people at search metrics like on various level employees of various levels and they introduced a certification at some point, a search metrics, yellow belt and green belt. And I was a bit of a beta tester. And I, I did the, was, I think, like the first non-employee who did it. I provided feedback. And then when they officially released it, uh, somebody made a posting on the search metrics Facebook page. This is the first group of people who got the search metrics green belt. And I wrote a comment like, I think I did this two months ago. Like, how can they be the first? And it was a group of, of clients in America. And then an, an American Facebook employee commented like, no, 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 you don't count. You're wrong. Go away. Uh, and then uh, a, a German employee from Searchmetrics reached out to me like, oh, sorry, Malta, something went wrong there in the communication. And then it ended up with Marcus Tober, the, the founder of Searchmetrics, making a comment like, Malta was the first non-employee who did the test. Uh, and uh, by the way, Malt is a very smart SEO and I was always hire him. And then a few months later, I wanted to leave my role in management consulting. So I sent Marcus a message. Uh, next thing, his secretary sent me some plane tickets and I, I flew to Berlin and uh, talked to him and uh, some people in the product team. Wow. Flown to the, wow, flown to the, the offices. Impressive. Cool. Share, <laughs> um, yeah, that um, that yeah, it just reminds me of a bit working in 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 deep crawl, working in tool provider. That kind of miscommunication. Um, <laughs> I can I can definitely um, yeah, I can definitely relate. Okay, cool. So you you fly to Search Metrics. You get you know, obviously you got a job at Search Metrics as a as a product marketing manager. Now that's a a role that um, I've had. I've I've worked with product marketing managers. But for any SEOs listening, could you just explain what that role was at Searchmetrics? Like, what was your day-to-day -day role in that role? Sure. So product marketing is a bit of an unclear term, and especially in Europe, it's kind of new. And I've seen many companies do product marketing very differently. But basically, it's in the intersection of product marketing and sales. So you try to take the things that are created within the product and engineering team and distribute these properly into your marketing and sales organization and then it depends a little bit if you are b2c or b2b company such metrics was enterprise b2b so very sales heavy and um, then it can entail a lot of things like sales enablement work uh, just a lot of internal education 
uh, of course, messaging on the marketing side, defining the go-to-market strategy, working with the marketing team, what kind of assets are appropriate to create. Um, and in search metrics specifically, we would basically create a form of release document with wording, messaging, and then all the marketing assets would be based off this so that not every marketing channel starts creating their own USPs for every feature, but that it's like actually true and aligned with what the product can do and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's like a coherent message. And uh, then for sales, it can mean creating a one-pager that they can send to clients or to prospects, these kinds of things. And But also taking then the feedback back and bring it into the product team. And then in search metrics, it was a slightly bit different because I also had this other role where I would put out fires that urgently had to be put out, but they were not like the number one or two fires that Marcus as the founder would tackle. So I worked with every single department, like with, I was once involved in some recruiting activities. I, I worked with various people in the finance team. I worked on the contracts we were sending out. Uh, I worked, of course, with marketing, professional services, customer support, uh, sales, uh, all of these things. And uh, yeah, could really uh, touch every every area of the of the company. But that is maybe not the day-to-day -day work of any product marketing manager. <laughs> Depends what I guess what SaaS company you work at, right? Was that was that early days for search metrics? Was that um was that like with search metrics just like got funding or it sounds it sounds uh, like no, no 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 uh when I joined search metrics, especially together with the predecessor companies, the company was seven years old, two hundred and fifty people. Um it was okay. not the early days, no. Okay. Well, Sounds like sounds like early days, uh, but I guess I can relate to that. Like working with different departments, doing things that, but that's just that's just PM. Um, okay, so it sounds like you had a great overview of such metrics, especially when you worked there for many years, right? So I guess I'd just like to zoom in on how you, because it sounds like you worked with go to marketing strategies, release plans, actually making, taking the the features that were being released and explain because I remember working in P as a PM having to ex have like explain the benefits like like you said to the sales team to customers to non technical stakeholders. So can you just take us through how I guess the communication strategy really of all right taking like you talk to product managers and then you talk to business people. How did you bridge that between the two? Yeah, I, I think the solution is to talk differently to, to every recipient. So if you communicate with decision makers, executive, high-level people in the company, give them a summary of what the topic actually is, because most of the time they will just be like, okay, just do it. I don't need the details. Or just forward it to whoever is doing the operational thing. Um, for them, always focus on business impact and basically structure your communication like a management consultant would do. Um, there are some great resources online around how to write emails like a CEO, like make it just very simple to reply with either yes or no to your email or with option A or B. Don't write a kind of email where people need to type a paragraph um, or when you present something to them, don't come with 15 open-ended questions, come with something where they say, great, or they can say shit, come back and change these three things. <laughs> Uh, can I say shit on your podcast? You can absolutely say shit. Okay. Um, and then a sales team will care about very different things, right? A sales team cares about what is the, the value pitch that I can give to the customer, like what is in it for them. But also they need, at least the good salespeople, they need one or two interesting stories they can tell about a product or a feature, like give them these nuggets they can use in conversation. Also, salespeople are often not that deep into the topic itself. So they need to need some trigger words. Like you can't just tell them, give them a new feature. They don't know which client needs that feature, right? So you need to help them to understand, okay, do you have clients that have these, these, these characteristics that they bring up these, these, these goals for the year, these, these problems, then show them this feature, right? Especially for such metrics, because it was a, a software suite with very different things, right? We had project management, we had crawling for the website, content creation, a research area, totally different areas with different users, different stakeholders. And um, 
Sorry, go on. I was just going to ask. A, I was going to ask a, a jump in and ask a question because I, I remember. I remember this specifically. A deep crawl. Did you create anything called a battle card? Does that ring a bell? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, yeah. uh, to to uh, like Combat. position yourself versus yeah. competitors. Yes, yeah. we created we created a lot of battle cards. Uh, I created a lot of FUD documents. Uh, fear, uncertainty, <laughs> yeah. and doubt. Uh, of course. Oh, it's all coming back. Yeah. Um, let's say let's say competitors of deep crawl. We had to always create because because. Um, you probably know this, but the people always position you against what they think are competitors or, or other, like if you, you know, Google Sheets, Excel, et cetera, right? So you're mm. always like, well, they can do this or they can do that. Or, and so you have to, like you said, like you just said there, you have to give the sales team almost preemptive battle cards, things that they can talk about that either deflect or show that actually we have those features or that, well, no, we, we don't have that, but we can do this, or we can do this. So I remember those, I remember those conversations, <laughs> fun, fun times. Um, so in terms then of, so that's business, sales team, in terms of client services and customer facing teams, basically already like a new feature, for example, did you ever have to deal with, um, it sounds like you did, deal with client-facing teams who had to explain new features or updates to features. How did you go about handling that communication-wise? Yes. So they need most of the things that the sales team needs, and then they need more in-depth knowledge of the feature, like how to actually use it, where to click, some good demos to do with the feature, ideally different demos for different clients, uh, maybe even a hint how to do a personalized demo that is insightful for each client these kinds of things. So I would normally do demos, like record a demo or do it live, then meet with the different teams, do Q&A sessions. Um, and then once they showed it to one or two clients or practice for themselves to show it to each other, they would come back with, I run into this issue. How do I continue if this and this happens? And uh, sometimes in these rounds, you already realize there's a bug hidden somewhere that you hadn't found earlier. Um, but yeah, this is like some form of live or recorded demo plus feedback sessions with them was normally the way to go. And uh, then at some point I just got uh, an account in our Zendesk and the highest level of escalation was just to assign tickets to me. And uh, then I would, would sometimes just talk to the clients directly uh, uh, about the issues they were facing. Again, um, that is not typical product marketing. That was a no, yeah. multi at search metrics thingy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you sound like a PM, not like a product marketing. Well, the one the product marketing managers I worked with didn't didn't do any of what you're saying. That sounds like a PM role. Um, which, yeah, probably why you became VP of product and director of things. So, yeah. um, just in terms, then, I just want to jump a little bit on education because I know education within a company and clients around any changes because i noticed um because i did a bit of research before this podcast i noticed that search metrics like you grouped your products into other not you, you kept it looked like you kept the features but you just you just packaged it up a little bit differently and communicated it to let me just did i make my notes yeah you have research cloud content experience search experience site experience and then market research you have a search metric suite and then a market research. I think before that, you just had like, here are these features, keyword research, like you said. Because I remember search metrics having the graph, you know, the the the, the well-known graph that you show your clients like, oh, it's going up, it's going up, um, which is now the Ahrefs graph and the Semrush graph, right? But it used to be, back in the day, it used to be the search metrics graph, which was a product, right? So how did you... How do you tackle education when your product marketing manager or multi, whatever you were at Searchmetrics, um, how did you tackle education within a company? Because I know that's something that a lot of SEOs not don't struggle with, but it's a, it's a it's quite important in, as a PM. I, I remember, and I and he still kind of look, I still apply those things now to SEO because. You're, you literally are releasing brand new things, right? <laughs> Effectively, or, or updating other things. And you have to educate people who have no idea, who haven't been with the devs and haven't been with the, with the other teams. So you mentioned there about demos, but was there, did you have any, did you learn a specific framework, a specific way of educating both clients, customer service teams, and then maybe sales teams? Um, so 
internally, uh, there were some people who, whenever they talked to me about education, would always say, yeah, yeah, Malte, I know, I know you're gonna say the secret to educating adults is repetition, because I did say that a lot, and it's true, right? It's the number one secret. If you want to educate adults, you need to repeat. And one of my mentors, who actually also was CEO at Searchmetrics for a while, Volker Smith, he, he told me, Malte, if you want to explain something to adults, you have to repeat it so often that by the time you feel absolutely ridiculous saying it again, maybe 50% of them will remember it. So, and, and he would also do this, right? He would have a certain message, a couple of sentences. For a period of months, he would repeat that in almost any meeting in very different settings if it was his key message that he wanted to go into the company. And I started to mimic that. And I repeated a couple of things again and again and again. And I think internally that can work very well. And the second thing is to realize that people learn differently. So I, did, I recorded a video or did a live session. I wrote an email. I shared a PowerPoint presentation. I did a Q&A meeting. Sometimes one Q&A meeting per team because a finance department would ask very different questions from a customer support team, from a sales team. And to just do all of these things. And if you expect people to truly watch a video or to truly think about writing you questions, put a blocker in their calendar that literally just said, one hour, watch the two videos that Malte sent you. Especially for salespeople who work remotely, you have to block it in their calendar. Tell them to watch your videos. Otherwise, they will skip it, skip it, skip it. And for very important things, we even did tests internally. So we had this uh, like also customer-facing knowledge base where you could watch videos, learn something, also take a test. Once a year, we made all employees take the tests. And also after a release, asking people to take the test, there was no printed out certificate or anything, but their team leads could say if they failed or not. And then the finance team lead said, I don't care if you do the test. But uh, the customer support team lead said, I expect everybody to do the test today and to pass it. And um, that, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, but you sometimes need it, right? If it's absolute key that people watch this and understand it, just test it in the end. And um, I, I think that testing part was important because otherwise you always have people who delay it and think, ah, uh, Malte talked about it in the all hands. There can't be so many changes since then. I, I, I will just check the feature out when it's live. But no, if it's their job to explain it to customers, make them watch the video, make them take the test, prove that they that they did it. How would you apply that to SEO? Like you just said repetition. You said use multiple forms of media to, to kind of explain the same thing over and over again because people learn. Book, block things in people's calendars. Have you, and I mean, I, I know you work now at a large enterprise company, but have you, you can't probably do the thing you did at Search Metrics. It sounds like you were, had a great role there, special role. Do you now, like, it sounds like you, you probably do, but do you apply those things you've learned to SEO or have you learned to do different things in SEO? Um, I still use the repetition part for internal communication. I mean, a lot of my job is working with stakeholders. And um, there are some topics that I want everybody in the company to understand that they matter for SEO. And I repeat them. And I have repeated them for one and a half or two years, I think, uh, because since then the current strategy has been in place and we have been executing on it. Um, so that part I really use. Yeah, I mean, I would love to force all my employees to do an SEO test on, on my colleagues. <laughs> Could you imagine? But uh, uh, obviously, that's that's not uh, in the realm of, of possibility. Yeah. So you need to. You probably need to get buy-in from the top and then work with all, all heads of department, because, like you just said, they sell the thing and have to explain it to people, and that like hits the bottom line of the business. So if they don't do the thing then the business won't make money or we might lose customers. So it's really important that they understand it. But I imagine lots of people in large enterprise companies don't, well, don't know about SEO and it, they, don't, they don't think it uh, impacts the bottom line, but we, I guess we both know it does. But you're right. It's, <laughs> I've never met anyone who's forced people to do an SEO test in themselves in, in before, but, you know, maybe, maybe listening to this podcast, someone might try it. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. So let's... Um, Let's move on to 
release plan. So you mentioned go-to marketing strategies. Um, could you just explain to anybody who doesn't quite know what that means, who's not here, maybe listen to this podcast, what that is? Sure. Um, your go-to marketing strategy is your your approach, how you get your product to uh, be purchased by customers, right? You can decide we're going to just do a silent launch, put it up on the website, people will find us. You can do a big bang campaign. You can do a roadshow. You can push it with blog articles. You can have many, many different approaches how to how to get something out there. Um, also, the packaging is a part of it, right? Sometimes you build something, you just put it on your current offering on top. Sometimes you build something, you sell it to completely new segments. Sometimes you build something, you sell it as an add-on or you only put it in your larger priced uh, product in the bigger tier, getting people to upgrade. You might launch globally or you might do a like, geographical launch, like maybe start in Europe, in one country, learn, then launch in the US with the Big Bang, then roll out the rest of the world. Um, and, and just having a general idea of how you want to go ahead, that is, that is your go-to-market, uh, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I remember making a few of those for my features. They're uh, they're intense, aren't they? But um, they're quite they're really important. You have to plan them way way ahead of way way ahead of time. Um, even being when you're building it, starting to build it, and it's starting to get off the ground, you need to you need to know who you're going to be targeting. You know what the benefits are. Who you which customer like even the the target base of your cust- current customers who that's going to impact. Um, all of that fun fun fun. I remember that so much. Um, okay. Could you, I mean, you don't, you don't have to tell us this specific feature, but could you take us through an example of, okay, we have this, this new product, this update, this add-on. Could you take us through the whole process that um, sure. Search sure. Metrics did? So the, the perfect launch would be uh, that we are already in an environment where we practice continuous deployment, continuous integration, continuous delivery. So we always have the feature live. It's just hidden. And uh, then we used feature flagging where we could say this feature only is shown to a particular subset of users. And we would start releasing the feature to the employees who actually cared about it. So all the product managers, all the developers, people in marketing, people at customer support, uh, customer success managers, these kinds of teams. Um, then release the feature to a fixed group of beta testers who've just said, hey, you can give me any new feature. Um, and to the clients who might have requested the features or might have specifically complained that they want this feature, then release it silently to the whole customer base, then do the big announcement. And that, in my opinion, for B2B or for a complex B2B product in the enterprise segment is the best release approach. And what is very important that in every stage you gather feedback and if there are bugs, you fix them. And once you reach the stage with the external beta testers, when you get their feedback, also gather testimonials from the ones that are happy, like get the quote, ask them to start talking to a legal team if you can use their name, their job title, their employer, their picture, their company logos for the release. Because then when you do the big release, you can already say, oh, here, this guy at IBM, this guy at Sephora, and this woman at, I don't know, Crate and Barrel. They all have like a sentence how they love the feature. Maybe you have already short video bites uh, because social proof is very important. And both social proof in the form of people, but also proof in the form of a big brand logo help. So using these phases to gather feedback, fine-tune the product, then release it to the bigger group um, is the best approach. Um, Reason why I am preferring this is that it doesn't matter how much you test, there are going to be some issues for some edge cases. I don't want our biggest enterprise client who is always a pain in the ass to see this, see the bug first, right? I want to catch the bug earlier. And... um, for the for the release announcement, it's just more impactful. If you already have a case study, if you already have a customer testimonial, then just saying, yeah, this is the feature. Yeah, no, the the feature flagging is. Um, did you did you have your did you build your own or did you use something like Launchdarkly? We, we built our own. Yeah, yeah. So we use Launchdarkly, and yeah, I mean, feature flagging at DeepCrawl was a lifesaver because, like you said, you could do you do deployments without breaking anything, but also give 
selective access to certain people who could see it. It's literally just uploading emails to a list and just hitting tick in a box, and it was it was magic. Um, okay, in terms of in terms of that go to marketing strategy that, that that release you know releasing in in iteratively in slices um has that taught you anything now about how to work with product teams engineering teams who are working like that you know to teach you how to think differently in terms of seo mm, i mean yes and no i, I would say in general Techni- especially technical SEO, but also SEO strategy is the mm. same as product management. Like there is no yeah. difference. Um, so one thing I, I really learned from from search metrics and the time I spent there was how to how to structure product engineering teams. Uh, like we had no chief product officer, no chief technology officer. So the VP engineering and me as VP product, we had to deal with these topics. And there is this. Uh, um, this term of a, a stream aligned team so a team that can work without any dependencies on the whole value stream like from creating the data to all the things you have to do with it to making money with it and you should have as many stream aligned teams as possible in your company in your department then there are three other kinds of teams that are allowed you can have enabling teams that support with something in the IT space it could be something like DevOps, security, AWS, complex databases. You have complicated subsystem teams that deal with something like maybe crawling Google and parsing the search result, like a problem that you only want to solve once and then others consume it. And you have some platform teams that provide some kind of service for everything. And you need as many of these stream-aligned teams as possible. Only create other teams if you really need them and never put multiple of these roles into one team. It will just never work and you can translate this to to other things like uh, if you have a content team you should not build it and an seo team then you should not build it in a way that the content team needs to wait on the seo team or the seo team needs to wait on the content team you should try to build sub teams or subgroups that can just work on their own ideally from keyword research until the content is released without interacting with other teams without waiting for feedback without having alignments meeting without having their head offs discuss the priority just build small sub teams let them work with focus and and then you deploy as many of these as possible and really it doesn't matter what we are talking about could be could be regional sales teams uh, could be anything right where if you can get it done in a stream aligned way from end top to bottom set it up, it scales, 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 and you have very little overhead in terms of escalation and conflicts. So I think this is how I now think about organizational design, uh, team design. Um, Probably most SEOs have one SEO team, or most SEO leaders have one SEO team, so I don't know how helpful this is is for most of your listeners. Um, But for my view, it's, it's quite important. Yeah, well, what's interesting is, is everyone I'm talking to on this podcast... Um, I was talking to, I think I'd last talked to Arij. I was talking to uh, Abby, oh, I forgot last name, uh, Abby as well. But it seems that what you just described is SEOs moving into, I guess, companies that have engineering and product teams that control effectively the front end of the website or the website itself. And for whatever reason, the company's like, we need to have an SEO in the product engineering team. So like you just said, they can work with them without, because, and I guess when it comes out, I'd highly recommend listening to Arisha's pod, uh, episode because when I talked to her, she talked she talked about night and day in terms of working in one enterprise company, having to go, what you just said, up the chain to talk, to go back down to talk to the engineering team. And, she, and then she moved to another company where she was literally in the team's workflow, you know, um, you know, sitting in sprints, talking to the dev, talking to the product team. And then she's just, she was like, I now know it wasn't, she, she, well, I, I, I won't speak for her, but she said that she, it, it was noticeably different in getting things done. Seemed to be, the difference seemed to be, I just moved to the product engineering team and I got things done. And what you just said there is what I experienced at Deep Crawl, moving from 
siloed platform teams, everyone, everyone sitting there to moving to the, these product squads where you literally had a front end dev, a back end dev, a designer, yourself, and you worked around problems and you worked together and then you pulled in people when you needed them and you just, and you just got left, left to it and just got it done. Um, I, I call it's called Conway's law, but every single process, if I don't read my newsletter, every single um, process company is bound by this law that you are only basically, you are limited to your communication network. So if you don't, like you just said, if your SEO and your content team constant aren't really talking to each other, aren't sat in the communication structure, then they'll, they'll create their own sets of processes, complications, and it just slows everything down. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting you say that because I feel like quite a lot of people I'm talking to on this podcast are mirroring what you just said. Like it's not well known, um, but it seems to be when SEOs go into product engineering teams, it it that happens. What you said there, like it seems to unlock something that they didn't quite have before. Um, and I think what you just said there nailed it in terms of these different teams not working together, not coming together. And what I experienced in the Conway's Law, I think, explains sometimes why certain organizations will never get anything done, where others seem to be able to get things done very, very quickly. Um, cool. Well, in terms of, let's just dive into then a little bit about, you just said there about organizational structure, team structure. Um, so at Search Metrics, when you were moving up the, up the ladder to, to become... VP of product, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you, did your teams move from that siloed kind of structure to a product squad kind of situation? Or were you, when you got there, it was already in motion and you just, and you just, and you just experienced it and, and watched it happen. And, or did you have to have to get everyone together and make, make people work in that sort of way? Uh, when I became VP product, we already had this uh, structure of, of permanent product teams that own one area of the product fully. Um, but when I joined the company, we hadn't. So I was, I was part of this process of moving from PMs pitching uh, for their project and then being assigned engineers to uh, cutting the product up into specific parts and then having people permanently work on them. Sorry, I'm trying to stop. You, they have to pitch... I mean, I've heard of that, uh, maybe large enterprise organizations, but you had the product people had to pitch for their for their ideas. When That's I joined Search Metrics about eight years ago, it was yeah. yes, wow. there like I don't know if it was a quarterly thing or half year thing, but yes, like all the product managers would stand in front of the engineers, like this is what I want to work on for the next X month, and then there was of course some back channeling where like perceived best engineers were already told you should apply to this. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine um, that happening, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically uh, 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 something of that sort uh, happened and then uh, engineers joined projects temporarily and it had some advantages and it had some disadvantages and when the platform grew, the complexity grew, um, of course it wasn't feasible anymore and it made it impossible to make iterative improvements because if the yeah. feature must be ready by friday in two weeks then you release thursday in two weeks and if there's something wrong with the feature people could create a bug ticket but you don't you don't yeah. have a sprint planned to just work on the initial feedback you get right yeah because you're busy you're too busy back channeling to, to the devs or pitching <laughs> <laughs> oh I, I love little stories like that okay um cool so you move to this or oh, you become vp of product you know everyone's moving in this product squad kind of way is there anything that you learned in terms of like tips and tricks to try and get maybe teams to work together more effectively because i know that get like effective teams is hard because it mm -hmm. depends on who's in the teams did you did you find that there was certain ways or tricks that you had to make work making teams more effective when you were vp yeah, I mean, you need to make sure that the team has a vision and that they all understand it and at least the majority of them likes it and everybody can accept it. Um, I mean, you have always some people who are more passionate than others, right? It's it's okay. Not everybody has to be in love with the vision, but everybody should accept, okay, this is the vision, right? This is what we are working on. 
and or this is what we want to achieve. And that helps a lot. And then just allowing them to find a way of working that helps. And then I come back to these stream aligned teams because if they own the whole feature from data collection to building the back end to the front end to delivering the value to the customer, they can decide which database technology to use if they want to do once a day a CSV file export or if they have Kafka topics that send messages live. Like they have no dependency with other teams. They don't need to negotiate with other teams what to do. They just can decide for themselves. That gives a lot of ownership. Um, and then it's when they have the ownership, then it's also fair to expect of them to make it work, right? And to get up at night if it breaks at night. Uh, then they are incentivized to build it in a way that it doesn't break. And um, I think that is the most important thing for me, these two things, like the vision and empowering them to make all that, as many decisions as possible inside of the team. And then just giving the team the resources to do all of these things, um, which sometimes means money or credits on AWS. Uh, sometimes can mean an open headcount that they can fill however they want. It can mean access to an agile coach, access to the tools that they need. Um, I think that is the best way to allow a team to form. And then in the end, it's it's on the team lead to make sure that um, they, they fit together. Do you have any, um, or did you give any kind of advice to any PMs when you were a VP about working with developers? Would you, did you, was there any certain things that you've learned that this is actually, this is a, a good way of working with a dev and this is a this is probably a bad way of working with a developer. When building your features or, or working with them, like is there anything you can, you can um, provide? Yeah, I, I mean, every PM has a different style. Every developer is different. So I try to stay away from these big generalizations, like always to this. But what I would encourage people to do is to offer to the developers to be involved in the process as early as possible. And there were developers who wanted to join a call with customers during the discovery phase, just understand what is happening. Um, I would also involve developers in coming up with the solution. I, I think it's very wrong if the product manager tries to like there's this old style of product management where you shield the team from everything. You just talk to the customer, you talk to internal stakeholders, you gather everything, you do discovery work on your own, you prioritize all the solutions, you come up with the concept, you go to the developers, right? This is a few years ago, some people might have sold this as best practice product management, right? Shield the developers, just write them the tickets. But I think if your developers are open to it, the much, much better approach is to always offer to involve them as early as possible at least during some form of, of a ritual that you have in your sprint, keep them informed what's happening on the discovery side. Um, you could, for example, just invite them optionally to every customer interview you have, every, uh, every demo you are doing with customers to see how they react. Um, and then also share feedback. Like um, we often had super excited uh, uh, customers for some features like, it, it was borderline unprofessional, but I have received emails about like, <laughs> I have tears in my eyes or you have built my wet dream of keyword research. And it's nice to hear these things. And I encouraged PMs to share that with the team. And I even printed these statements on paper and just hung them in the office, sometimes on the door to the development floor so that everybody who came in had to read this. Wow, for some guy at company, beep, uh, the Conant experience is his wet dream of working with keywords. Like that is that's a very good, strong that's, emotional That's a feedback. good testimony of that. <laughs> and I, I wasn't allowed to put it on the website, unfortunately. No, I don't, um, think, I don't think we love it. Either. But yeah, I think those can be things that, that the developers feel that their work matters and, and that the things that they do have impact. And then it's not developer specific, it's just celebrate successes. Like make sure you have some downtime. Um, one thing I would always encourage PMs is to not ignore technical debt, but actually put it on the roadmap or put it in the sprint. Also something like, hey, let's update some systems we have running, right? It's often something that PMs ignore. They just want to push, push, push features, but no, just 
every five sprints, you could do like a maintenance sprint where you update all of your systems, update the documentation, build new, I don't know, Docker containers, whatever you are using, uh, new virtual machines, if somebody is still using those, um, actually test if your backups are working, these kinds of things. Um, don't don't make your developers feel like they have to finish their current week Friday at three and then quickly do all the updates of all the critical systems you have running or ignore updates for five years, which some companies are doing. Um, those would be my advice to, to working with developers. Do you think any of that applies to SEO in terms of, you know, because SEOs aren't in charge of sprints. They're not, you know, in charge of, the critical systems updates, but do you think that SEOs could, you know, get devs involved early? Do you think SEOs can provide a vision? Do you think, you know, SEOs can make sure they they share successes? Do you think that that would help working with developers? I mean, definitely it's the responsibility of the SEO to, to set the vision for some things and to explain why some things matter that matter a lot to Google, but might not matter to humans. Um, it's also important to share successes, of course. Like if somebody builds you a new feature and that is a tremendous SEO impact, they deserve the credit, uh, not you. Um, sometimes that I say very often at Idealo, for example, is that 90% of the SEO work is happening outside of the SEO team um, because the SEO team is identifying problems and prioritizing, but very, very rarely is the SEO team solving a problem or building the solution. Right, that is normally product engineering, UX, content, these kinds of teams, and yeah, that's my point. <laughs> I wanted to say something else, but I just forgot it. It's fine. You, you just you, you're talking a lot, so yeah, it happens to me all the time. Um, it happens to me right now. Um, I was going to ask you a question and I've forgotten. But in terms of so, this is a, a question that I I get asked a lot. It's like okay, so you've joined a company, you first, let's say first 90 days, what would you do if you joined a company and you worked with the engineering and the product team? What were the first things that you did to, I would say, build a relationship or build partnerships with your dev team, with your product team? Um, what would what would Multi do? What would you do? L- learning so if from- If I joined a new company yeah. now, um, I would f- try to find out who are my stakeholders. Um, I would try to spend a lot of time with my manager and their manager and try to understand why was I hired, uh, what do I need to achieve, what is the the problem I need to solve. Um, And then on on my level that I am on, I would probably have conversations with somebody like a director of finance or with the CFO to understand the P&L statement of the company, understand the impact of SEO, talk to the chief product officer, CEO about what is the vision, what are the problems we are tackling. Uh, I would definitely make sure to understand the planning process, like are there OKRs, is it uh, management by objective, is there a way to pitch projects, if yes, what KPIs are used, does the company have an approach or an understanding or a concept of health metrics, and if yes, what are those, and if there's nothing related to SEO, how can I establish a new health metrics? How are decisions made? Um, Honestly, that is what I would focus on. Um, If I was one or two levels below my current role and be on like a a, individual contributor, product manager role, um, I would make sure what, what kind of overlaps does my team have? Like, are we a stream aligned team that can just do stuff? Uh, If yes, then... I mainly need to talk to the devs and the stakeholders and see what are the opportunities we have. Um, and if it's not the case, and if we have a lot of dependencies with other teams, I would try to understand if people are interested in resolving these dependencies or if we, it's something we have to live with. Um, but that would, of course, make it much harder to just find an opportunity and work on it because we would be dependent on others, would have to have a lot of meetings on, okay, what's currently on the roadmap? What can we change? What is fixed? Um, so, so something like, like this is what I would do on my first couple of days. First couple of days. Okay. Cause my, um, so what's fascinating is, is that, yeah, now knowing what I know now, if I joined a company just like you, although I'd obviously look at the website and I'd, you know, do some digging, I spent a lot of my time talking to people like 
like understanding the business, understanding stakeholders, understanding dependencies, like you just said, KPIs or OKRs. Um, finance is always a good team to talk to if you if you have a finance team um, to just understand the business model and just understand what what is because I feel like a lot of what the devs do is connected to all of that because there's such a relationship between there is a partnership between the two called the partnership principle. If you don't understand the business side, it's very hard to understand why that sometimes devs are doing what they're doing. Like, why are we doing all this, you know, like you said, features and growth and why can't we stop and just, you know, fix things? Um, it's because maybe the business needs to do certain things to survive or it needs to hit, you know, if you're a SaaS company, maybe you need to hit a certain level of MRR a month, but otherwise you're, you know, you're, you're going to go under. So it's really important, like, like you just said, it's really important to understand the context around you know what is happening in the business to actually start to work and get recommendations SEO recommendations implemented so that is that is an interesting answer because that is yeah that is definitely what I would um also start doing some things you said I, I didn't even think of so thank you thank you for that multi um <laughs> um okay so we are we well wow we are what, 45 minutes that's gone quick um okay so I just want to talk about um getting i guess getting you've, you've talked about vision you've talked about roadmaps you've talked about kind of working with devs in terms of what vision means to you could you just explain what you expect from say a pm or an seo to what what vision is so that someone needs to brief you on their vision for the next six to 12 months what does that mean yeah, so first of all, I'm not an expert on vision, mission, objectives, and how to differentiate these terms. That's fine. Um, That's fine. What, is it? what I expect is to have a framework that gives me two things. Number one, it should be the lighthouse, like what is the direction we are going into. And number two, it should be a razor that allows me to make decisions. So if it's too vague it doesn't really help me, right? It, it should be something that is not concrete because then it's a specific goal, but it, it must be concrete enough that everybody in the company knows, okay, this is where we are going roughly. And I don't know if, if you and I and five other people decided to go to, I don't know, Big Ben in within seven days, we could all go there. We would all take different ways. Maybe even if two of us were in the same city, we might take different routes, but we could get there. Right, and and this is what a vision is like a, a lighthouse of what direction to go into, and and it should be a direction that is actually helpful in making decisions uh, about basically anything like uh, team structure, whom to hire, which team to grow, where to put my effort, uh, these kinds of things. That is what I expect from a vision or mission or whatever a company decides to have. Yeah, like in products, you, you, yeah, you always hear about vision and mission and values, and it. I've tried to apply it to a CEO. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It overcomplicates an already complex situation. So, um, yeah, I, I a vision really is just like we need to grow like this. Like we want to build these things to grow this to help the business get these results right. Um, yeah. it doesn't need, it shouldn't be, in fact, it should be, you should be able to explain it in like a sentence or two. It shouldn't be over, like overly complex. Cause like you said, um, before, like communication wise, you need to repeat it over and over again. So it needs to be simple enough to, for people to understand and say yes or no to. Okay. In terms uh, I, I, just to be transparent at, at Idealo, we have developed an SEO vision. I put quite some thought into it, okay. but I couldn't explain it in two. <laughs> sentences because it has like six sub areas yeah uh but it's a large seo team and we want to achieve a lot so <laughs> yeah well yeah, i mean yeah. yeah sorry i cut you off no no it's fine um well i have the i mean i've, I've put it in the newsletter but i have the seo strategy stack so i have like this framework these artifacts to help somebody go okay like it's not it's not specifically about vision but it is about you have to connect your delivery work to a key problem that the business is trying to overcome. And within that is your roadmap and your strategy, which is sort it kind of all blends together in terms of what a vision is. It's just, I break it down into these specific artifacts that help you debug why maybe nobody cares about why these things need to be implemented. Right. Cause it's all connected. 
Um, speaking of which, your roadmaps, in terms of search metric roadmaps, and now I guess how you apply roadmaps and communicate roadmaps to your, maybe maybe your team needs to communicate you to where you work. Can you just take us through search metrics, how you put together roadmaps if you did, and maybe now how you put together or expect roadmaps to be in a certain format the way you work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in search metrics, since we had these sub-areas of the software that you mentioned earlier, like the search experience, research cloud, site experience, et cetera, et cetera, um, and there was one team on them and one product manager, basically, we had five roadmaps in parallel uh, because each of them could develop one. And the approach how they were created was quite different. So because sometimes we had a quote unquote finished product um, and then the roadmap was based on what our customers what do customers want um, what do we see from competitors and what can we realistically do to improve upon this and uh, there were then normally two or three things that we would do in a quarter and they all involved talking to customers doing research fine-tuning things making small improvements um, there was one area of the software, the, the crawling part, which we had just built completely new um, after we had thrown away the, the old crawler, or actually the two old crawlers, because if you have a legacy product, you have sometimes the same feature twice in different ways. Um, and, and there we really had like a very long backlog of things that we knew we needed to be one of the top two, three crawlers in the world. Um, and I believe at that time we were in the top 10 and I'm not sure we were in the top five even. Um, and, and there it was more about bigger things. And in some cases, things we already knew how to build, we just had to execute on them. And there was another feature that was basically released to production as an MVP with a lot of uh, uh, band-aids. And we had to just rebuild it. And there, there was not a lot of discussion about the roadmap. It was just, okay, what is feasibly techni- like what is technically feasible to finally move to technology stack that you don't have to fix every two or three days? Uh, it, it was more engineering driven than product driven for, for some quarters. And um, so these, these roadmaps actually came together very differently. And that's also how I would expect it. Like you should look at what is your current situation? What is your goal? And based on that, you might have completely different approaches to to your roadmap. Um, Right now, I'm not in a product leadership role. I'm in an SEO leadership role. So uh, I just work with now, next, later roadmaps. So I always want to know what are the two things we're working on right now? What is the one, two, three prioritized things after that? That's all I need to know. Yeah. And yeah. The later is like a big bucket of things we might never do. And I don't care what is on position eight and what is on position 22 on that list because it's both the same. It's not the next thing. Done. I don't need any more information on it. Yeah, yeah, no, it, yeah. I really, really am a fan of the now next framework, mainly because, well, you can also turn it into quarterly frame, uh, quarterly timelines, but I, I do enjoy the the, the now next timelines because it does like, how to put this i've had so many times i've been burned by giving deadlines as a pm and i'm yeah you're nodding and laughing but yeah it 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 just doesn't work because there are just so many unknowns that you just you just can't account for and and to be honest with you it's not i mean it is your job to own it and and get it delivered but like it it like building building software's hard and and it's complex and it's not simple and i imagine and and i, and I know <laughs> seo is similar it's it's like like you said 95 percent of stuff is done, not done by ceos so yeah i i like i'm, I'm glad that you use that next late framework because it i do think it's a a good way of of going look this is what we're working on now this is what's coming up like you said one two three we're basically discovering and making sure we can get those three things done and then like you said later is a list of ideas that we think are going to help move the needle that are still prioritized but they're going to move in like a month's time because does that does that happen to you? Do you like, I guess both the search metrics and where you work now, the roadmap changed every 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 few weeks. It's like yes, yeah. Uh, I I just finished up, uh, or we just finished a project recently that was supposed to take one month and it took ten months. 
Um, <laughs> Sounds, yeah. And uh, I, I probably burned some goodwill with some stakeholders by pushing for this project, saying, telling everyone, yeah, yeah, it's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. Um, but no, something has to be done. And at Search Metrics, we had, we had one feature release. It was delayed by two and a half years. Uh, wow. I mean, we stopped working on it in between because we saw other opportunities. But at that time, it had already been shown to a couple of customers in an early version. So, uh, I mean, that can also happen, right? That you, you never release. You just build, it works, but then in the end, it, it does, doesn't go live, right? And this is more of an issue, I think, for some very agile B2C companies like uh, Snapchat is throwing away 90, 95% of the features they are building. Oh. Because they always build these new filters, and if they don't become one of the top filters, they remove them because they distract too much. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, at a, as, as an enterprise B2B company, you can't do that because for every single feature you have, there's always that one client who absolutely needs that. And even if you see in the log file that they have not used it for the last 19 months, they're telling you they need this feature and it must be written in the contract that it's there. Um, well, but... Hmm. Yeah. Well, the, you you should be uh, you should always be careful when talking about unreleased things because they might never be released. So do you do you find yeah well I mean it makes sense with TikTok because the more stuff you add to I guess your code base your users it 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 just bloats and and slows down every single release. In terms of I guess in terms of that like just so interest like two two and a half years not released. I just yeah that's just insane like that. That is that was it. Is it a lot of time as well? A lot of dev resource went into it, or is it like one or one or two teams? Or um, I mean, for a time, a lot of effort went into it. It was for a time the biggest project Searchmetric was working on, but we couldn't make it work, so we stopped. And then at some point, another team picked up, and they could reuse some things, but had to completely redo others. Um, but the 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 basic value that we provided and what it looked like in the front end that was the same as what had been envisioned two and a half, probably three years earlier by, by Marcus Tober, the founder. I guess as well with, with B2B, like you said, sometimes people will not touch features, but then other times they'll, they'll keep using that one feature. But if you don't have that other feature, it's like, oh, I don't have it. Well, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to buy your product anymore. And it's like, you never use it. But... Yeah, yeah I, I recently had a discussion on, on Reddit with, with someone who really didn't understand B2B product management because mm. the reality is if you build B2B enterprise products, at least 25% of your features, you are only building either to survive the checklist state of yeah. the purchasing decision, like you need to have this, or to be compliant with some kind of data protection or legal team, or to be compliant with some security team, or for that one customer who really, really wants it. Yeah. And that is at least 25% of your features. And it's still good to build them if you are a sales-led company because you just need them to get the buying decision. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so it, it, like, I guess it's kind of like log file analysis. Like everybody wanted it. I'll be, I'm going to be very honest with everyone right now, all the SEOs listening and, and with you, Multi. Everybody wanted log file analysis because Spotify had log, log file analysis, right? Spotify made this crawl budget thing up, which if you didn't know, that's that's who made it up, I think, from my research. And everybody wanted it, and you got it, and you didn't really do anything with it. Even though log file, even log files are important, and it is interesting to have if you have a massive site because it's helpful to see where Googlebot is going. People got the feature, and then they never really did anything with it, um, apart from saying that sometimes bot hits were were too were too like low on certain pages that should be, but those pages and think I mean you could you could you could probably predict ninety five percent of what would get crawled versus not through internal linking, external linking, traffic, you know, and some other metrics. Like you don't I'm gonna I'm ranting now, but log file analysis is such a uh it's such an important feature for, for deep crawl. We, I don't think we ever I don't think we've really nailed it. We had things that you could use to, you know, to I guess plaster to get log files into deep crawl. But Never had anything like Spotify, but it's one of those. That was one of those features you were talking about. Twenty five percent checklist to survive. You had to have it, but when you got it, when clients got it, I don't think they they used it as effectively. I don't think it was that big a deal or helped them as, as much as they thought it did. 
Um, it's just one of those things I, that, I, I, that you get. Yeah, I think, as you said, if you have a massive site, it's really important. Yeah. And for example, for me, it's really important mm -hmm. to have good log file analysis yeah. at, at Idealo. Yeah. But uh, I guess that for something like 98% of SEOs out there, it's just not relevant. Yeah, you could, yeah. I, I, from, from analysis, I can predict probably, I've always been able to do 95% more Google crawls just because of, like I said, certain data points that you could already get that, yeah. But anyway, I'm ranting. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> okay, it's coming up to, wow, an hour. Whoa, I could, every single guest, I could talk another hour and talk your ear off, but I'm just conscious of people listening. So um, let's, let's just move on quickly to strategy. Um, obviously, you probably, obviously not asking you to divulge anything to do with your current SEO strategy, but is there anything that you've learned putting together product strategies that we haven't already talked about that you now apply to SEO in your current role? I think getting in multiple perspectives into the room, like people with different backgrounds, different strengths, different from different teams in the company um, to come up with a strategy. That's like the one advice I would give you. How would you get people, like, let's say you were an SEO, an SEO manager. Have you found, like, what is the way to get people in the room? Because I've, I found that that, that hundred percent agree with you. And interestingly, when you, when you do build features, say deep crawl or, or search metrics, getting in different perspectives is hugely important because there are things you just completely miss, both engineering, product, client services, sales, you know, we'll all have different perspectives. But if you, do you have any advice for anybody who is out there listening to get people in the room? I mean, I never had issues getting people in the room, okay. but maybe I can also be a little bit pushy and I'm, I'm German, so I'm very direct <laughs> also when I expect people to show up for a meeting. Yeah. Um, no, I think what really helps is to build a reputation internally that you are somehow working on important things and have some degree of intelligence and uh, just building good relationships with your peers. And then uh, you should not have any problems getting people into the room. I mean, just just be there, show up, be helpful and and be nice to people and uh, try to be involved in a couple of uh, multi-team projects and a couple of company projects and then people know you and it definitely helps to be a person who is talking in a company all hands every once in a while and then just just be known internally and and then people will show up for your meetings yeah agree completely you you build up your partnerships and then like you said you can start to ask for things or, or get people's perspectives because it isn't suddenly cold like cold outreach you know no one likes cold outreach but if you warm up to people you know get involved help be helpful um and just start getting people in the room discussions yeah i always like to start small as well i, I don't like to try and do huge projects but like start small and something that you can move so you can do and get that trust and get that res those results in because you've done something then like you said builds up that trust for the next level of big thing or, or medium thing um okay cool so i'm going to ask you one final question uh retrospective i like to ask it all of my guests uh and thank you for for coming on multi so if you were going to hire yourself at search metrics uh all those years ago what were the top three things that you would teach them skills that you'd want them to know to get them kind of working effectively with product engineers that you've kind of learned throughout your career? Yeah. So if I were to hire younger Malta as a product manager, I would say learn to say no, even to good ideas, because there are too many good ideas you need to focus. Number two, learn how to say no without offending people. And there are different ways, right? You can say, oh, yeah, great idea. I'll add it to the backlog. Or you can be, yes, but then tell me what other thing I shouldn't build that we previously agreed, something like that. And the third point is understand that for enterprise SaaS, uh, the company has to be sales-led. And uh, don't, don't let yourself be distracted by these fancy uh, B2C product management books that are very good for their use case, like uh, Escape the Build Trap from Melissa Perry. Very good book for B2C product managers. But if you work in B2B enterprise, just understand that's not how it works. 
there will always be that one big clients who want the feature. And if you look at the MRR, if you look at the revenue, you just need to build it and just, just accept it. The company is sales-led. It doesn't mean the sales team is dictating, dictating you what to do, but sales as a function will dictate what you have to do as a product manager in enterprise B2B SaaS. Just accept it. Um, and if I were myself to hire working with product managers, um, I would tell myself two things. Number one, bring problems to product managers. Don't already imagine the solution based on limited data. Bring them the problem. Work with them on the solution together. And be prepared to very, very well articulate the why of any request you have. And actually, if you just do that for yourself, just when you have five ideas or five requests for a product manager, for engineers, just write down a readable, understandable explanation of the why. And I guarantee you, there will be two or three ideas that you just throw away because you realize that you were thinking about this whole thing wrong. And this is something that still happens to me. Like I had a conversation with, with like very high level decision maker in the company. He had this great idea. We both agreed. We talked, thought about it. And I started writing it down the next day. I was like, wait a minute, our goal is this. And once I had actually written down the why, why this was a good idea, I realized there are three things we can do that are much easier, that are much more aligned with either our interest or the interest of, of consumers. So always, always, always bring a very good why. And once you've written it down, ask the question again, why is this what you want to do? Um, those, that's what I would like to teach young Malte. I, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I, I'm, I'm, I think to be honest with you, writing and thinking is probably the, the huge, the biggest difference between young me and older me is I now, I, I filter out what it is I'm giving people because like you said, you have to give them why and then you have to yourself have to understand why that is important. And then that can help you filter out a lots of things that you would give them that actually erodes trust. So yeah, those those are those are great um, lessons to teach younger Malta um, and younger Adam, to be honest. Um, okay, where can people find you? Where where can people talk to you if they want to talk more about SEO and product? Uh, just follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, that's where I share my thoughts and ideas. Cool. Is there anything you want to give a shout out? Uh, if you need to compare prices, use uh, Idealo. <laughs> like it. Well, thank you so much, Walter, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it, uh, and I've had such a such a, a nice time reminiscing about about product in in uh, SEO tool provider companies. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Adam. Cool. Bye. Bye bye.